Welcome to the Garage Podcast, presented to you by the Young Adults Group at Salem First Baptist Church. Thanks for tuning in to hear this week's message from Pastor Tyler Hankey. Friends, welcome back to our series called What Even Is This? This is week two, and if you're new, this is a series all about the local church. This is a series about what God thinks about it, how God designed it, and how God wanted you to impact the church and be impacted by the church. What is your role in it? What does God want for it? Where's it going? All of that good stuff. Let me give you a little bit of recap, and then we'll jump into the new stuff. This series was birthed out of my deep desire to see the local church thrive and see you involved in it. And so I just started asking this past summer, what is the church? God, what did you want for it? And so week one, we started asking the question, God, what's your connection to the church? so that I can understand this relationship. Just like I've got a number of friends, but I have one wife. And that title, that relationship dictates my behavior and shows you something different about that relationship compared to my friendships. And so when I look at the church, God reacts to it and with it differently than he does other groups of people. And it shows you what he actually thinks about it. And so scripture reveals a number of different connection points to the church. I revealed four of them last week. Number one, Jesus dies for the church. That shows you that he gives it intense value. He intentionally plants the church. The church is not an accident. Okay, it wasn't a group of people that God found. God founded it. He made it. He built it. So he died for it. He plants it. He intentionally leads it. That's the third connection point. So he doesn't make it and then run away. He builds it, dies for it, builds it, and then he says, I'm gonna lead you, so follow me. And the fourth connection point is that he disciplines it. Like any good parent, he watches this young baby church grow up and he sees it through adolescence and he sees it as an adult and it's growing all around the world. And he says, I want you to behave a certain way and if you don't, I'm gonna punish you. And so today, now that we know the connection point, the connection is deep, it is intimate, it's powerful, But what is the church? What what is this group of people? And how was it originally designed? Today, we're gonna talk a lot about leadership and a number of other things that make some people a little bit uncomfortable. But I wanna really briefly just define it. What is the church? It is the gathering of regenerate believers. And that's important, that's an important distinction. The church is not just a gathering of people, it's a gathering of saved people. Those that have said, unitedly, Jesus is our king. We serve Yahweh and him only. Now, can non-Christians come to the church? Of course. That makes things messy, and we're gonna talk about the, you know, the functioning of the church later. It, it definitely does. But God says, the church is my family. The church are those that have already bended the knee and said, you are my king. We will serve God only. And that will be an important distinction for later. But I want to show you here at the beginning the start of the church. All of us love a good origin story. Hashtag all of the Marvel movies. But the origin story of the church is found in Acts chapter 2. So to give you a little bit bit of background before we jump into it, Jesus has already died. He's resurrected. And he's, yes, met with certain members of what will become the church, but he hasn't officially started it yet because he says, I want you to all go back home 
and I want you to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has just ascended into heaven. He's given the great commission. Go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples in my name, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. That was the great commission. So Jesus is physically gone, and he tells all of his apostles, go back home, and I want you to wait, and something's gonna happen. You'll know when it happens. It's gonna be unmistakable, and sure enough, it was. The Holy Spirit rushes into the room and dwells all of these believers. Tongues of fire are above their heads. They're speaking multiple languages. It, it's, it was during Pentecost, so this, there's all kinds of Jews and other other individuals from multiple different regions in Jerusalem, and all of them can hear the disciples teaching in their own language. And so it's so insane that the crowd accuses the believers, the followers of Jesus of being drunk, and it was nine in the morning. Peter's like, we're not drunk. We're, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's kind of a new thing for us. And so he starts preaching. And Peter is, has always been one of my favorites because he's like me. He's loud, bombastic, and makes all kinds of mistakes, but he's genuinely interested in the redemption of people. And so he starts preaching a very powerful message, very convicting. He goes, Jews, you're waiting for the Messiah, yes? And they're all like, of course, it's kind of what we do. And he's like, well, you missed him because you captured him and then murdered him. And so he reveals who Jesus was and the Holy Spirit is convicting these people. And they, they get to the point where they're like, holy cow, you're right, we missed it. We completely missed who Jesus was. And so they look at Peter and they say, what in the world do we do? And it's at this moment that the church begins. And so as I read this text in Acts chapter two, I want you asking the question, what do I see the believers doing? What, what do I see the church doing? What is God blessing? And then what does God not wanna do? What does God say no to? Look at this text and ask yourself, what is the church doing this is Acts chapter two, starting in verse 37. It says, when the people heard this, the, the sermon that Peter preached, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? Peter replied, repent. Now pause right there, don't read any further. I love this because often we, we start looking at you know, the, the moment of conversion for people and we're waiting for this hugely emotional moment. We're waiting for the butterfly feels in the gut. It's like, no, none of that. Do you want to know what real transformation starts with? It starts with repentance. So for you, if you're sitting here, if you're listening online and you're like, man, I haven't prayed in a while. I haven't read the Bible in a while. Do you want to know what you need to do? You don't need to wait for someone to come find you. You don't need to wait for a warm and fuzzy feeling in your gut for, for God to say, look, buddy, I love you, come here. You wanna know what you need to do? You need to get on your knees and say, I'm sorry. Lord, I am sorry for rejecting you. I'm sorry for ignoring you in prayer. I'm sorry for not opening my Bible in weeks or months. I'm sorry for saying to you by my actions, you don't matter. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not mad at you guys. I'm not trying to shame anyone. I've been there. But my point is, don't wait for a fuzzy feeling. Peter says, don't wait to feel better. He goes, repent. If you wanna get on board with what God's doing, he says, repent. He says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. With many other words, he testified strongly and urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. 
So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to their number. Again, pause. We're going to keep going in a minute. But did you notice something? When you start thinking about the church, often, again, we seem like a bunch of crazy, hyper-emotional religious people. And, and sometimes the church is not exactly known for its organization. However, looking at this verse, here's one thing I know about the church. It's organized, or at least it should be. Because when, don't skip over that last verse. What did he say? He said about 3,000 people were added to their number. How did they know what the number was? They had someone in there counting. They, they knew who the Jesus followers were already, and they had that number. And then Paul, you know, Peter was preaching, and they start baptizing people, and they're like, okay, there's one, two, three, four, five, and they got to somewhere around 3,000 people. Now, that's beautiful to me because the church isn't just a bunch of loud individuals like myself speaking words. It's the organized people. It's the detail people. It's the numbers people. And they're counting because they want to know. They're like, we, we want to learn your name. We want to get to know you. We want to make sure you're connected. Let's start counting the numbers. And again, they get up to about 3,000 people. The church, even at that moment, was decently organized. But it continues. Let's ask the question, what did the church do? This is verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Again, pause. I love this list. This is what the church did right at the beginning. So you've got 3,000 people that are like, Jesus, I am in. And the first thing they all decide to do together is they're like, we need to devote ourselves to proper doctrine. So this isn't, let's get together and, and pool our collective ignorance. They get together and they're like, we need to find chosen, anointed teachers. And we're going to say, would you please instruct us in the ways of Jesus? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Like, we want to get better. We want to understand more. Please teach us. Which means for you, the church, the modern church, what should always be a part of the gathering of believers, the teaching of the word of God. And I, I cannot tell you, we've had so many people coming to our church lately, and one of the number one things they say, they're like, man, I'm so thankful we found a church that's preaching the Bible. And I'm laughing because I'm like, what in the world was your church actually preaching then? Like, from where you came from, what were they talking about? But I can tell you, as I've scanned pastors online, as I've listened to different sermons, there are some guys that genuinely just preach a self-help sermon. And I don't even want to call it a sermon because it's not. It has nothing to do with the word of God. Like, sure, it's encouraging, but it has no power behind it. They, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Here's the next one, and I love this one so much. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, now notice, this wasn't, they devoted themselves to Bible study. I mean, they, he already said that, so yeah, like, we've got the Bible, that one's on the table. But the next part, he says, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Here, here's the beautiful part about the church. This line right here teaches you that sometimes one of the most holy things that you can do is invite someone over and hang out. 
There are multiple events that we have in this ministry where it's not overly righteous in the sense that it's not, like we're not gathering together to worship or we're not gathering together to read the word. We do those things, absolutely. But sometimes we just get together and we hang out and we play games. Because guys, again, sometimes one of the most holy things that you can do is fire up the barbecue, grill some great burgers, and no, not hot dogs, get that garbage out of here. If you're a real Christian, you're eating a burger. But we're, we're gathering together and we're hanging out and we're eating and we're just talking. They devoted themselves to the fellowship of the believers. And it says that they broke bread together. Now, some people translate that as they gathered together for communion. Maybe it means that. I actually don't think it does because later they actually talk about communion and they make a specific point of it. So I don't know why they would leave the title out here. I think it means they actually just got together and ate food. Again, showing you that we don't need to be self-righteous and, and like uber holy. Sometimes we just need to get together and eat good food. It says later in, in, in the same section that they devoted themselves to meeting together in each other's houses and they ate food together joyfully. So sometimes what you need, and this sounds heretical and I don't mean it to be, but sometimes you don't need another Bible study. Sometimes you just need to sit together and talk. Sometimes I think God's like, look, would you stop overcomplicating this? Can you just meet together for breakfast? Can you meet together for dinner? That can be one of the most beautiful things that the church does. And finally, he says, they got together and they prayed. And I love this one too, because this shows that the apostles weren't sitting there going, we have all the answers, like come together and listen to our teaching. No, they gathered everyone together and they were like, look, we gotta sit down and pray. Otherwise, we're gonna mess this thing up. Prayer is when you vocalize your need for God. God, I don't have the strength to love these people. I don't have, I don't have it in me to forgive my family. I, I don't have the wisdom in me to make this decision. Lord, I'm leading people. I'm leading this organization. I'm, I'm leading my dorm. I don't know what to do. Please help. Prayer is also where you worship. And you just say, Lord, you're great. I mean, it, it's a Tuesday. It's a Wednesday. It's a Thursday. And I'm just excited to be with you. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for who you are. They devoted themselves to prayer. And so here's what we gotta ask though, guys. Like that, that's a fairly significant list. They got together and, and, and later in the verse it says they got together and they were sharing possessions. They were selling property to make sure that certain individuals had what they needed. So they, they were going to temple almost every single day. They were just worshiping. Why do we need to know this? Because you gotta start asking more questions. They were gathering together they were going house to house. They were praying. They were serving. They were worshiping. They were eating. So those of you that are kind of more leaders by nature, you're already asking questions like, okay, so who's leading all of this? Like if you're gathering 3,000 people together, clearly they weren't going to one person's house. They, they were going to hundreds of homes. If there was 3,000 people, how are we gonna feed all of them? If there's 3,000 people, how are we gonna fit all of them in one location? Well, the answer is they didn't. I mean, yes, they had large gatherings, but they made big church small. And they went house to house and they worshiped in smaller groups and they did study the word and they did train up new leaders. So if you're trying to figure out how the church behaved like the church, I have one answer for you. And I've already said it, but it's leadership. 
And that's what we need to talk about today. We need to talk about church government. And for some of you, you hear church government and you kind of do what I do because you've had a good experience in church. You hear church government and that's like walking into the aisle at Home Depot with all the, the containers. Like I walk down that aisle and I worship, man. I see all those like black containers with the yellow lids and I'm like, oh baby, organization, this is awesome. Others of you though, you hear church government and you glaze over. Like this is boring to you. You're like, I, I don't care about this. And, and I hope to change your mind, but then there's a third group. You hear church government, and you're hurt. You almost get mad. Like, church government is like a cuss word to you because you grew up in a church that was painful. You grew up in a church where the leader manipulated you or your family. You grew up in a place where there wasn't any grace. You would reveal sin, and then you'd get shamed for it. Or maybe you're here in this church, in our church, for the first time in a long time because you were hurt by another church and you're like, look, never again. It's, it's a flat-out miracle that you're here at all. Or you're listening online and you're, you haven't gone to church in months or years because you were hurt or you were disrespected or you saw organizational unhealth and you're like, I'm done, I'm out. Look, I gotta talk to all of you, whether you love it or hate it. Leadership, organizational hierarchy, whether you like it or not, is from the mind of God. The organization of the church was not left to human beings, meaning we didn't create it. No, we try to steward it and we don't always do it well. Absolutely, I'll give that to you. But God didn't create the church and then say, okay, do in it whatever you want. He created it, he leads it, but he also says, I'm gonna build for you a structure. And if you live according to the structure, you will be safe. If you don't, you're gonna be in a lot of pain. And so if you have been hurt by the church, would you please trust me? I'm just begging for another few minutes of your time. Don't tune me out. If you love organizational leadership, would you please listen and, and just learn how you can better get involved? But really, my prayer for the past couple of weeks has been that those that don't understand leadership or those that have been hurt by it would deeply appreciate it anew after this message. So let's talk about church leadership because there's three positions in the church for, for leadership. When God looks at this massive group of people and there's billions of us all around the world, how does God organize it all? Well, yes, he, he says, you know, let my word be the lamp to your feet. Like we need to look to scripture and to Christ as our head, yes. But organizationally on a human level, what did God do? He said, I've given you three positions. We find all three in actually one verse. This is Philippians chapter one, verse one. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ, that's one, together with the overseers, that's two, and deacons, that's three. And so the, the names change kind of depending on your denomination, so please bear with me a little bit. The top level of organizational leadership is the overseers or elders, commonly called elders, I think, in most churches. Second level is deacons. And third level is church members. And yes, I'm gonna make an argument for church membership. So if you've, you know, you look at church membership and you're like, I don't see church membership in the early church. I don't see it in the Bible. Like, brace yourself. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fight you next week. This week, I'm only going over elders. We're gonna go over deacons and members next week. So tune back in next week to find out how I can offend you. But 
Here's the first one, elders or overseers, same word. God looks at the church and he says, I need it to be led by a certain group of people. There are two passages in scripture where you're gonna find a description of this individual. One is in 1 Timothy chapter three, the other is in Titus. Now you can hear of elders being referenced to in other parts of scripture, but their actual role and function is found in these two sections. I'm gonna go over 1 Timothy chapter three. So again, I'm gonna read this and I want you listening for who this individual is. Listen for how they're described and what they're told to do. And this will help you understand how God wants his church led. This is 1 Timothy chapter three, starting in verse one. Here is a trustworthy saying, says Paul. Whoever aspires to be an elder desires a noble task. So he goes, this is a good thing. You should want to do this if you're in the church. Verse two, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace. Now, I need to preface something. If you don't know me, you need to understand I'm not here to offend anyone. I'm not intentionally trying to say anything inflammatory. My goal is that the church would thrive, that anyone under my leadership would be benefited and understand scripture more. And the reason I preface it that way is because if you've grown up, especially in this Pacific Northwest culture, that has been decimated in gender ideology, like twisted forms of gender expression, you're gonna look at what I'm about to say and, and maybe not like it really at all. So you gotta trust me. I'm not here to offend anyone intentionally, but this might sting a little bit, but you gotta bear with me as I describe leadership in the church. Notice something. In these eight verses, there was something that was referenced 12 times. And that thing that is referenced is the gender of this leader. 12 times in eight verses, it tells you that the elder, the leader of the church is a male. Now, let, let me just real quick before anyone tunes me out, this is not to say that women don't have any leadership in the church. It's not to say that women need to take a back seat. It's not to say that women aren't important. It's not to say God likes men more. That is not what this is saying. It is saying in the hierarchy of leadership, it is men that will take a certain position of responsibility, yes, over women. Now, it's hard because I'm gonna reveal more about eldership here in, in this text and in the leadership of the church, and I'm not gonna touch on deacons and deaconesses until next week. So I promise if you hang in there with me, I will reveal more about female leadership in the church, but that's next week. Today, we need to talk about leadership and organization. And before I talk about the specific role of the elder, think about leadership with me for a second, because I want you to fall in love with it. 
When you look at the world, I see leadership everywhere. And you, you might bow your chest at it if you've grown up in a culture that hasn't respected leadership. But the fact is, I see it everywhere. And all leadership is from the Lord because God works in a hierarchy of leadership, even in the Godhead. Yes, there is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there is a first among equals in the Godhead. There is God the Father that oversees the Son, and the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So I see leadership even in the Trinity. I see leadership in marriage. God created husband and wife, but he says that the head of every wife is the husband, and the head of every husband is Christ. I see leadership in when I look at organizations in the world like the military, there is clear headship in the military. There, there is the commander-in-chief. There's captains. There's lieutenants. There's commanders. There's petty officers. I see leadership and function all the way up. I see leadership on every sports team. See, I, I see captains, and I see quarterbacks, and I see left tackles, and I see position players, and I see all throughout the sports world an understanding of role and function. But what's funny to me is that I look through all of that and I see businesses that have CEOs and CFOs and all the other, you know, different positions in an organization or nonprofit. I see all this leadership there, but then for whatever reason, when we come into the church, I see people freaking out. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like in the church, we're all equal. And I'm like, no, we're not. We are clearly not. Because why do we look at the world? Why do we look at sports and the military and marriage and, and all these other things that we see and go, look, I see leadership there, but then in the church, like, eh, I don't know, I'm not for it. No, there, there is clear leadership in the church. There is role, responsibility, and function. And, and I'll just say this real quick. There is going to be an accounting for leadership decisions. So for those of you that have had bad leadership and you think they got away with something, they didn't get away with a thing. Hebrews says that they will be judged doubly compared to everyone else. If you decide that you want to be a teacher or leader in the church, God says, I will judge you twice as hard. So prep yourself. Like if you want this, don't think it's all sunshine and rainbows. God says, I will punish you twice as hard. But I want to, again, let's focus specifically on the elders, the leaders of the church. It is not just saying that if you've got an XY chromosome set that you're automatically a leader in the church. Not at all. What he is saying is that the best of men lead the church. He's not saying that it's just men that get to lead. He's saying the best of men. As he describes this functioning, notice that he doesn't just say, the job of the, the, the elder is to lead. He doesn't just say that. He spends eight verses revealing the character necessary to be a leader in the church. And then he gets to function later. So let's analyze, whether you agree with me or not, let's analyze the character of this man. First thing that I want you to notice is that he says he's above reproach. The leaders of the church will be above reproach. This simply means that when you look at this individual's life, whether you agree with their decision-making or not, you look at them and go, you know what? Th that man deserves to be in that position. I respect them. They, they haven't lived a life where I am suspect of their decisions. For example, my wife and I have had a number of foster kids, 
And when you have foster children, you are overseen by an umbrella organization like DHS or CCS. And so one, there was one young lady that was incredibly difficult. We just butted heads all the time on every decision that we made. And so she goes to our higher ups and she says, Tyler assaulted me. And I was floored because I was like, okay, we haven't agreed with each other, but holy cow, assaulted you? Here's what I love though. The, the higher ups, they, they listened to her, they heard her out and they did an investigation as they needed to. Okay, I'm, I'm, it's not that I can never be accused of anything. They, they came and talked with me, but they revealed how the meeting went and I, I loved their response. So the young lady goes up and she goes, Tyler assaulted me. And the women in, in, the, in the group were like, assaulted you Tyler are, are, like Tyler Hanky like they were floored because I had been in relationship with these people on a professional level for multiple years and look I'm not trying to brag but I have lived an exceptionally professional kind life and I had sheltered dozens of young ladies and so this one comes up I had never been accused of anything once not one time and so this woman, because she was unbelievably mad at me, was like, Tyler assaulted me. And they were like, do you know who you're talking about? Like, they laughed, not, not disrespectfully, but they were like, this has got to be a joke. And that's what I'm saying. Live a life where when you're accused, the people are like, okay, we'll hear you out, but this sounds ridiculous. This person, this elder has lived above reproach. It says that he is faithful to his wife. He's faithful in his marriage. And I love this one because this creates a safety net for you, the church member. It's not just me walking up going, hey, I'm an elder. Like you get to go to my wife and ask her, what kind of husband is he? And, and I'm telling you, this gives you proper function in other churches. Like meaning you know what to do. You can walk into any church and I would argue if they're healthy, you need to be able to go to the leader's wife and ask her, what is it like at home? Is he respectful? Is he kind to you? Does he take into account how you're feeling? Does he actively build a world where you thrive? And if the answer is no, if she's like, actually, it's a pain in the butt to live with this guy, then his leadership is suspect. Then you need to go to the other elders and say, look, you've got a rogue over here that doesn't deserve to be in leadership. Specifically, he is a faithful man to his wife. He's not flirting with other women. He's not mistreating the wife that he has. He's building a home, a world where she thrives. That's a safe man. Look, again, even if you disagreed with male-only leadership, what you should be feeling, especially if you're a woman, is, look, I, I might not agree with everything Tyler's saying right now as far as leadership goes, but when I read scripture and I look at this verse, the man that it's describing is a man that I could get along with a man that I could be led by. It says that he's temperate. He's got his emotions under control. This isn't a man given to rage. It's not a man also given to depression and whining. This is a man that understands emotional stability. He's got things that frustrate him. He's got things that scare him, but he doesn't give in to these things. He's temperate. He's self-controlled. He knows enough about himself to know his weaknesses and he knows his temptations and he keeps himself safe. This is a man that understands, you know, what to watch and what not to watch. This is a man that isn't given to addiction. He is self-controlled. He's not flying off the handle. He's not giving inappropriate jokes all the time. He's not cussing all over the place. He controls himself. He's not a little baby. 
He's not a little boy. He's self-controlled. He's respectable, it says. He's earned the respect of people. You can look at this guy and go, again, I might not agree with everything that he says. I don't need to, but I do respect the way that he lives his life. He's hospitable. This one actually caught me as I was studying for this. I normally, and, and I, I think I'm in the majority here, normally I would take hospitality and apply that to the woman in any given situation. But it says of this man, of the leader of the church, that he will be an invitational individual, that he will pull people into his life and they will be better upon leaving his home than they were when they came in. He will intentionally reach out to people and say, come, come into my world, be safe, you know, ref refresh yourself on, on this, this island, this, this Eden that I've created. He's hospitable, and he will work to create a world where people thrive. Now, I, this next part is interesting to me because it's the only skill on the list. If you notice everything else about the list, it's all character traits, but right here it says that he's a gifted teacher. So if you want to be an elder... That's a noble aspiration, but you need to make sure that you're a teacher. If you're not, it doesn't mean you're a bad man. It just means that you're not going to lead the church, which, again, isn't the end of the world. Not all men are created to be elders. These are the best of us, specifically gifted by God to lead his church. They will be good teachers. He notes later, Paul notes, that Timothy has been specifically gifted as a teacher and preacher, and he needs to use that gifting to bless the church. So any of you that are teachers by profession, you get this. The essence of the teacher is someone that looks at somebody else and says, I want you to thrive. I, I want to give you information right now that I have that you don't. I want to help organize your thinking so that you can do better in this life or in this topic. That's the essence of the teacher and it's the essence of the elder the overseer of the church. It says that he doesn't abuse alcohol. Now, for some of you that have grown up and you're like, alcohol is the devil. I'm like, okay, can we just calm down for a second? It's not. It doesn't say that the elder doesn't drink. It says the elder doesn't abuse alcohol. I also don't think that this is arguing that the elder should drink. If you don't want to drink, don't drink. But don't sit there and say that the best leaders are ones that completely ignore alcohol. It just says this leader doesn't abuse it. He doesn't flirt with the line between sobriety and being buzzed or being drunk. He doesn't even touch it. He knows how to use alcohol in the celebration of events. He, he knows what it is to drink and then stop himself. He doesn't abuse it. He's also nonviolent. He's gentle. And this one, I think we need to understand better. This is not saying that this man is weak. It's saying that this man is so strong he knows how to apply his strength. In the same way that any of us would play with a child, any of us adults or, or young adults have the ability to violently hurt a child. It's true. You are bigger, you're stronger, you're faster. But when you play with a kid, you restrict yourself. It's the same way in an elder. He, he's not violent. He's gentle. His strength is under control. And then next, he's not quarrelsome. He's not going around picking fights. He, he's not obnoxious. He's not bugging people. This man is making peace, not making fights. He's also not obsessed with money. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have money. You can be an elder and be unbelievably wealthy, but he's not obsessed 
with money. And as I said before, his wife and his kids are thriving. It makes specific note in verse 5, it says, if anyone doesn't know how to manage their family, how can he take control of God's church? You need to be able to go to my wife and my children and say, what, or, or ask them, what is Tyler like? And you need to be able to do this with any of your pastors, any of them. Because if they're leading the church, I don't care if the church is doing well. If their family's hurt and if their family wants nothing to do with the man and nothing to do with God, they're a horrible leader. At the end of the day, I would rather leave my position as a leader of the church if it means my family would be guided and protected. I would rather do that than stay in the church and see it thrive and then see my family hate me or hate the Lord because I've decided self-righteously to give myself to the church and not to my family. God's never okay with that. My family is my first ministry. The church is the second. Now, yes, I want to advance the church. In the grand scheme of things, there is no other thing that matters more. Yes, I understand that. But on a practical level, meaning day to day, my life lived out, I need to make sure that my wife and my three children have what they need to thrive in this life, to follow the Lord, to grow in their faith, and then I come in and I lead the church. My family is a testing ground for you to determine if I can lead or not. Now, finally, it says he can't be a recent convert because it's just too young. You don't take someone that's been in a company for a day and make them president. You just don't do that. You don't take someone that's brand new to following Jesus and say, okay, now go teach all of us. Like, that's just silly. It's just dumb. You don't make a new convert and elder. Sorry, don't do it. And lastly, it says that his neighbors like him. He's got a great reputation with outsiders. Now, I've actually heard of elder or like individual men coming up into church and going to the senior pastor and saying, hey, I want to be on the elder team. And they're like, okay, let's talk. And then the elders that are current will call that man's neighbors or his business partners and go, what's this guy like? And they're like, oh my gosh, he's a pain in the butt. Why are you asking? And they're like, uh... Well, he wanted to help lead the church. And they're like, okay, no. Here's the thing, guys. This is what I love about God. We live a holistic life. And it's, it's like I just said with the family. I cannot say that I want to lead the church and then abuse my family. Nor can I say that I want to lead the church and then disrespect my neighbors. God says, look, you are connected to so many different people and you are never gonna put your hands on my church if you are disrespecting other human beings because that shows me you're not ready for leadership. Now, I, I wanna address, before I talk about what they do, and I, I know we're running short on time, but I wanna address something because it, if you've grown up in an overly feminist culture, and, and I mean radically unhealthy feminist, not not saying like, if you want women to be treated well, that you're not who I'm talking to. I'm just saying, if you've grown up in a culture that says men and women are exactly the same, all of our roles are the same, and we need to be able to move into the church and do the exact same positions, regardless of gender, I, I'm sorry, you're, you're in for some hurt. Because when I read scripture, it, is, it seems clear to me, and I'm fallible, I'm not perfect, but it seems clear to me that the leadership of the church at the highest levels is male. But here's what I want to address. We don't know why. 
And you need to hear this because this can be abused. Men can use this to dominate women, and that's never appropriate. We, we are not in leadership because we're smarter. We, we are not in leadership because we're better communicators. We're not in leadership because God likes men more. We're not in leadership because he likes women less. We are simply in leadership because he told us to be. And I take that unbelievably seriously. My position of leadership is not so that I would be more comfortable. My position of leadership is not so that women would serve me. My position of leadership is to make sure that everyone under my charge thrives. And just like Jesus says in Ephesians, he says, men are to lead like Jesus. And Jesus came in and said, I will give my life for the church. And so men come into marriage and they're like, I'll give my life for my wife. So I come into the church and I'm like, yes, I am in a position of leadership, but it's so that you would do well. And I will destroy myself if it means that you are bettered. My position of leadership is not given to me so that I might abuse you or take advantage of you. And so again, if there's any man in a position of leadership in a church and he is using it to manipulate or abuse, he's a horrible man and does not deserve to be in a position of leadership. Guys, we don't know. God never explains why he gave men headship in marriage or leadership as elders in the church. He doesn't say why. He doesn't say that women aren't ready for it. He doesn't say that women, you know, don't deserve it. That's never what this is. He just says, men, you're going to be in a position of leadership, but I will hold you accountable. And ladies, he does say to you that you have a position of leadership, but it is not to the same degree or responsibility. He moves you into a different position. It's in the same way that we don't, no one ever asks, like no guy in the history of the world has ever been like, man, Lord, how come I don't have a uterus? Like, no dude's ever asked that. He's never been like, how come I can't have babies? Now, in our current culture, we're twisting that and we're surgically implanting a uterus in biological males and we're just ripping apart the foundation that God has laid, the structure that God has laid for gender. We are. And sure, you can go find a church that seems to be doing well and it's led by a woman. That doesn't mean that we should do it. Every single time that the term elder or overseer is used, it is used to describe a man leading the church, or, or men really leading the church. Because here's, here's what else I noticed. This is 1 Timothy 5.17. This is what elders do. It says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So when you ask the question, not, not what is an elder, it's a qualified male, but what does an elder do? Elders together as a group of men function to lead the affairs of the church and to preach the word of God. That's what we do. That is what an elder does. We lead the affairs of the church. And so if someone's like, what does an elder do? You say they preach and they lead. That's it. We preach and we lead. And you'll also notice when elders are described in Scripture, both in Timothy, Titus, and elsewhere, it's always in a plurality of leadership with a first among equals. What do I mean? When you look at the church, like whenever Paul, read this in Acts, whenever Paul goes into a new city, he fasts and he prays to determine 
who the elders need to be in the church. So he goes into a new city. He's like, I'm going to plant a church here. And so he starts gathering a group of people and he goes, okay, Lord, who are the men that are going to lead this church? And so he fasts and he prays and God says, okay, I want you to pick this guy, this guy, this guy. All right, they're the elders. They're going to preach. They're going to pray. They're going to lead. They're going to advance the cause of Jesus in this area. And then he moves on. And what this does is it keeps everybody safe. So again, if you move into a church, into a new city, and you go to a church, and there's one guy, and it's clear that nobody else is around him to guide him, run. That's a dictator. That's an authoritarian monster that's creating a cult. What you need to find is a group of men that are leading the church. There should always be multiple. The Bible never says how many. So we don't know. Some churches are led by, you know, two elders. Some are led by, you know, six. Others, 12. You need to find a church with a group of elders. But the last thing that I'll say, you always need to find a group that is led by a first among equals. Because see, here's, on, on the one hand, if you find one leader, you have found a dictator. But if you find a plurality of leadership and there's no first among equals, all you found is chaos. I know of a number of churches that it's like, actually, all of us elders, we're equal. We, we share the preaching responsibilities. And I'm like, you guys are fools. I, I don't mean to sound mean. I don't. But I don't see that in Scripture. What I see in Scripture is a group of qualified men coming together to lead the church. And I see one guy who's been lifted up among his buddies. They have all agreed this is the primary speaking, teaching, vision casting elder. What, where do I get this from? Well, number one, here in the text in 1 Timothy 5.17, it says that there is extra honor due to the elder whose work is preaching and teaching. And then later, I mean, the, the essence of 1 Timothy is Paul teaching another senior pastor. And that's Timothy. So he says later in, in 1 Timothy 1.3, he says, your job as the senior leader of this group is to call out false teaching. Also, in 1 Timothy 4, he points out that a good minister is reading the word and devoting himself to the preaching of that word. In 1 Timothy 3, it also says that Timothy needs to teach his church how to behave. So what I see in 1 Timothy, what I see in Titus, and what I see Paul doing in multiple other churches is he elects a primary speaker. I see a single Leader, And again, and I've said this before, go into any group where there's no elected leader and tell me what it's like existing in that group. I, I've been in multiple Bible studies and, and kind of growing up, we were just kind of, it was like trial by fire. I would, we would pull a group of friends together and we're doing this Bible study and we're all like, man, we're all friends and we lead this together. I'm telling you right now, it is pure chaos. And in every group that I've been in, when we try to do it that way, we inevitably get to the point where we need to say, look, yes, we're, we're all equal in, in that we're image bearers of God. We're all equal in that we're, we're married or whatever. We're all going to the same church. But at the end of the day, even in this tiny little Bible study, we need to find someone that says, I'm the leader. I'm going to help us make decisions. I'm going to break ties. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pray through the, the guiding choice of what study we're going to do, where we're going to meet, what time. You need someone to say, this is where we're going. Every church needs a senior leader. Every marriage needs 
headship. Even in the Godhead, there is headship. So when I look at the church, it is patterned after God himself. And I see singular leadership with a governing body. For example, like at our church, Pastor Mark does not get to make every single leadership decision. He'll come up with different ideas and he'll present it to the elder, to the elder board and they will decide together where the church is going. Pastor Mark can't run over and go, hey, you, children's pastor, you're fired. Hey, you, uh, you know, women's ministry director, you're fired. He can never do that. He has to go to the elder board and say, look, here's a decision I want to make. Do you all agree? And I'm telling you, that has kept him safe, it keeps the elders safe, and it keeps the church safe. So when you go into a church, what are you looking for? You're looking for a group of qualified men with healthy families and a senior leader that is ready to make hard decisions and lead the church to follow Jesus. Leadership is from the mind of God. And it's something that we need to take seriously. And so I want you to be better prepared to go into any city, any state, any country and find a church led by good men. Now, next week, you gotta stay with me. Let's look at where we find female leadership in the church. Let's look at what the role is for women. And there is a beautiful role I'm not sitting here going, women can't do anything. I don't sit in that camp. There is incredible places for women to lead and serve in the church. So we're gonna go over that next week as we talk about deacons and deaconesses and church membership. So I hope you'll tune in again next week with us as we continue this series, What Even Is That? Thanks for joining. Thanks for tuning in to the Garage Podcast. We hope the message has made you think deeper about faith and will strike up new conversations as you go about your week. If you want to hear more messages like this, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week.